Don Davis is a storyteller from Ocracoke, North Carolina, and joins us in this archive edition, first broadcast in July 1993, when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. In our conversation with Don Davis, he talks about the role of storytelling in modern technological society, the art and dance of storytelling in person and on tape, and storytelling workshops. Storytelling through the ages has had a very, very strong identity function. Uh, We repeat our own stories uh, to remind uh, ourselves of who we are. Uh, In a community, stories are repeated by a family or a tribe or or by a whole community uh, in order for that community to be able to say to itself, uh, we're the people of, of these stories. This is our past. This is our identity. We introduce ourselves to new people by telling them our stories. When when a, a new person is potentially to become a family member, we bring them home, put them around the table, tell them our family stories, and then sort of decide whether we're going to accept them or not, depending upon whether they like the stories they've just heard. That that's been that's been a, a story function just for for thousands of years, uh, and in a world in which a lot of our families are so scattered and a lot of our communities uh, are not tribal in terms of their makeup it's easy to lose that function um, and, and but we also see how, how how we desire it so strongly because we need those stories in order to feel a comfortable sense of identity well I think this is also particularly true of children who say uh, daddy tell me something uh, tell me a story about when you were a little boy Exactly. The, the child is saying, you know, tell me who I am uh, when you can tell me those stories about who I came from, what I came from, where I came from. Then, then I have a clearer sense of who I am. Now I'm the kid who belongs to the daddy who did so and so. I'm not a generic kid anymore. Uh, I'm the kid whose grandmother tells about the time when. Uh, that that gives me a clear sense of my place in the world. Well, in your experience, Don, have you found that um, with television there are fewer story stories put together and told from families, uh, from parents to children and generation skipping than there was, uh, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years ago when you got into this uh, uh, way of life? I think that's that's true from two angles. It's true in that um, when a family spends time sitting uh, side by side looking at something uh, outside their family, that is a television. Of course, the uh, the communication that takes place between them uh, falls to a pr- pretty low level. Um, when I say to kids, uh, "What do you do when the power goes off?" and you can't watch television, and you can't play video games, and you can't do anything that requires electricity, quite often they say, we tell stories. Very surprising answer to me uh, that they come up with that. Uh, When we went to a time period when we had nothing uh, electronic that we could do, 
and, and we had nowhere to go. We couldn't go to the mall or we couldn't go to town. Uh, a family came home and reprocessed the day through story. Um, now a, a kid comes home from school and mom says, what did you do? The answer is nothing. Uh, not because nothing was done, but because the kid's in a hurry to go do something else. And so instead of stopping for that story, uh, the answer is nothing uh, in exchange for some, some greater activity. Well, as a way then of uh, trying to develop the art of storytelling, uh, not only the art, but the meaningful family relations uh, in our children, how can a parent uh, encourage a child to say what they did at school rather than uh, the one word of nothing? Well, uh, things have to be slowed down a bit. Uh, there has to be more time at home. Uh, uh, time in the car sometimes works because you're, you're sort of captured there, especially on a long trip or a long vacation. But we have to have some, some particular kinds of questions, and they, they have to be not probing questions, uh, but very accepting questions. Um, uh, not the kinds of questions which make a person feel like they're on trial, but the kinds of questions which make a person feel like you're honestly interested in in them and in, and in what they're doing in a very accepting kind of way. A lot of that comes when the parent takes the first step and shares something. So that if a kid comes home and um, has done something to get in trouble, a very helpful thing is for the parent to say, can I remember a time when I got in that same kind of trouble? And then tell the kid that story instead of instead of the uh, of scolding or, or reprimand. Quite often that opens a whole world of new communication that wasn't there before. Well, that's telling a story, but that's um, not asking a particular question. But, w what kind of question would you suggest someone ask if they want to um, open up their kid in a uh, non-interrogating uh, non uh, and in an accepting fashion? Uh, when, if, if we want to open people up in that way, it's sometimes safer to ask about places and people than it is to ask about crisis events. To ask a, a question, say, uh, is there a place that we went once as a family that you'd really like to go back to again and keep pursuing that? Well, what did we do there that was, they may come up with a childhood trip that's very dear to them. Or is there someone? Is there someone in our family? We're going to go visit someone this weekend. Is there someone in our family you'd really like to go visit? Uh, do you want, like to go to Grandma's house? Uh, what I'm doing is I'm trying to search for meaningful places and meaningful people, um, or to ask about a, a friend to say, is there someone if, if you'd like to have over? Uh, to spend the night, help me meet that person, tell me more about them. Um, but I, but, but I still find that that if I can share my stories with them, they're more likely to respond with stories I've not, or I wouldn't have heard of otherwise. So I'm not looking at, at that point of direct. It's real different with kids and with older adults. Um, if I'm looking at my mother, uh, who's in her 70s. I can say to her, hey, Mom, when you were little, did you ever do something my grandmother never really found out about? 
but it's hard to ask that same question to my kid. Uh, they're they're going to feel defensive and not respond to it. So that that's the difference I'm looking at there. Um, you mentioned the word crisis events, um, and uh, depending on how we define crisis, that often may be the lead or the tip of of the iceberg of the story. Um, can you see a respond to that? Well, a crisis is not necessarily something that sneaks up on us. We volunteer for a lot of them. <laughs> a crisis is simply uh, something which turns a piece of the world upside down, and we have to we have to adjust to that world in a new way. So, uh, winning the lottery is a crisis. We would have to adjust our whole world. Uh, getting married is a crisis, or graduating from high school as well as the things that we think of like house burning down, uh, being fired from your job, um, being abandoned, someone dying. Uh, a cri crisis is the plot of the story. That's the plot center of the story. So if I um, look, at, look at a kid and say, can you remember a time you tried to cook something and it, and it didn't quite work? Uh, I'm, I'm fishing for a crisis event, or if I say, uh, do you remember a time you broke something that belonged to somebody else? Or if I say, can you remember a time you got in trouble for something you really didn't do? Uh, I, I'm probably going to be fishing for stories in that way. And, and what I'll have there is the plot. I'll, I'll be finding the plot of that story. Don, uh, how long have you been in the storytelling business, if that's the appropriate way to, to I, characterize it? I grew up in traditional storytelling in the North Carolina mountains, where that was just part of the fabric of, of community life. And um, later on, uh, continued to tell those stories because, as I mentioned earlier, when you're meeting new people, uh, one of the ways you introduce yourself is sort of tell them about where you're from and, and your story and things that have happened to you. I didn't realize that everybody didn't grow up with stories. And when gradually people would come back after hearing one of my stories and say, would you tell that again? Would you tell that in a particular place? At a partic would you use the story for a program, in essence, is what they were asking for? I began to be pulled more and more and more into storytelling. Um, since I grew up uh, with story and never had to essentially learn how to do it, a lot of my questions were about why do people tell stories, how, how, how does storytelling work uh, in, in commu community life, well, what's its meaning more than what are the methods involved in, in doing that. Um, it was, a, it was a, a backwards evolution every time I... Uh, did storytelling one place, I would be asked to do it two other places, and it gradually sort of geometrically grew into being, being my whole life. Well, at some point, uh, you were a member of the clergy, which is uh, one of the more traditional forms and forums of telling stories. Um, Tell us a, a story about your experiences as a Methodist minister. Well, I'm a, I'm a Methodist minister. I served in local churches for 23 years. I'm, I'm retired now because I travel as a storyteller all the time. Um, I do a lot of work with ministers. We think off the top of our heads, hey, uh, uh, being a minister, that's a natural for storytelling. It, it's not necessarily that, though, because 
the education process for ministry is very much a, a written process. And I find that a lot of people have to do a lot of work as ministers to be comfortable orally telling the story because they tend to script and then pre present their script rather than being comfortable with that. Of course, historically, the communication of story is the way in which any any particular uh, religious tradition passes on its existence, its history, its values from one generation to another. So that's precisely uh, uh, correct. I was right in the center of a storytelling world, but a world which, like our larger world, uh, has come close to losing that oral um, that oral medium. Um, we uh, maybe I should. We should say a word or two about that loss because um, a lot of that has come out of writing, television, radio, um, print, print, um, which is not uh, a communication um, uh, at all, but really presentation kinds of things. Don, I want to take a moment here and tell our listeners that uh, this is Government Politics and Ideas. My guest today is Donald R. Davis from Ocracoke, North Carolina, a master storyteller. My name is Barry Vogel. Don, um, let's turn for a moment here and talk about the difference between the spoken story and the written story. Okay. Very fascinating. Um, with the invention of printing, um, and, and of course uh, television is an extension of that same sort of inventive process, we, we sort of fooled ourselves. We thought we were working inside a, inside a communication medium. Uh, we thought with the printed word we could communicate more broadly. Uh, we thought with television we could communicate more quickly. Um, the reality is, though, that communication um, is a two-sided medium. The word itself uh, comes from the Latin communicare, referring to things which are shared. Uh, once I put something in writing, I've moved out of the communication medium because a person who picks up what I read, uh, what I wrote when I'm not there, can't ask me any questions. Uh, the person who watches uh, Dan Rather uh, and the news on television can't ask any questions. Uh, the person who hears you on the radio, unless they call in, you know, right then, can't ask any questions. And it's that question dynamic which is characteristic of the, of the communication medium. Now, in live storytelling, when I'm looking at an audience, that audience has... Uh, facial language, gestural language, sound, their attitude, their posture. They have all those things to look back at me with and say, I got it, or I don't get it. To say, I know what you're talking about, or with their faces to simply say, you lost me, I don't know where we're going. As a, as a living storyteller in that live oral kinesthetic medium, I have to constantly uh, check out that story with my audience. The, the same way if you're giving a person directions to get to your house, you check out every turn. You say, 
do you know where highway so-and-so uh, intersects with uh, highway so-and-so? If they say yes, you keep going. If they say, well, no, you back up. In that oral life medium, that's where I am. I'm engaged uh, in a negotiation with that audience. When I moved to writing, uh, I know that the person who reads what I wrote will will not be able to look back at me and say clear, unclear, with you, not with you. And I have to try in words to compensate for all of those losses. I have to try with the written word to compensate for having no gestural language, for being able to do nothing with the kind of sound shaping, which as an oral storyteller, I can use to make a word like mother have 10 different meanings, whereas it always looks the same on the printed page. Give us, uh, give us an example of several different uh, sound gesturing. Well, t take a word like mother. If we took 15 seventh graders, we could have them all take the word mother and change it from a plea to a label of disgust, to a cry for help, so you know, which moves from from mother to mother or mother, or a word like fire, which moves from fire to uh, fire. Uh, I need to get warm. Is there fire? I can do all those things orally. I can whisper someone into a room. I can create fear. I can. I can make oh a, a sound of disgust or oh a plea for help or oh a question. Uh, I, I write that down. Uh, somewhat one has no way to know what it means, so I have to explain that much, much more fully. And also, when you're present in a room, you can uh, use the movement of the arm to show the long neck of the goose or of the giraffe that you can't do in the printed media quite as well. In a story I say about Jack, I could say one time Jack was about this old. And what you don't see is I've held my hand out about shoulder height, which is not old at all. But as a gesture, if I say Jack is about this old and hold my hand at about the, the, the head level of a, of a fourth grader, the audience sees completely what I'm talking about. It's meaningless um, uh, in print. It's meaningless on the radio. If I say I caught a fish about this long, you have no idea what I'm doing with my hands. <laughs> and, and that's all lost there. Don, tell us a little bit about your work as the uh, chairperson of the board of directors of the National Association for the Preservation and Perpetuation of Storytelling. I've just uh, I've gone out of that office now. I held that that uh, particular office for six years. We have a national organization which is headquartered in Jonesboro, Tennessee, uh, an organization with about seven thousand members, uh, made up not just of storytellers but are, of people who are interested in preserving and perpetuating storytelling as a living oral kinesthetic art form. Um, that organization sponsors a, a huge national festival in October, the first full weekend in October. Um, I've just finished uh, uh, 
being at a conference sponsored by the same organization. The conference was at the University of Seattle of Washington in Seattle, which was a workshop event helping beginning storytellers learn how to start, helping people look at storytelling applications, looking at applications, say, in therapeutic processes, in language development, writing processes in school. Also looking very strongly at some of our storytelling traditions. We were looking at that Northwest Coast, uh, some Native American storytelling traditions, which many people in the general population are not aware of, even though they may live very, very close to, say, a Native American culture or population. So a lot of that work was um, was educational. A lot is related to perpetuating and, and spreading our art form. That organization now, the festival, the National Festival, will be in its 21st year this year. Uh, 20 years ago, it was the only event like that in the country. Uh, today, there are probably 200 storytelling festivals all over the United States during the course of a year. There's a very strong festival in the Bay Area, uh, which uh, the, the Bay Area Festival is uh, over on the Oakland side of the Bay in the spring every year, a very strong festival which draws national tellers. Don, if someone were interested in getting on the mailing list of these festivals, uh, to whom could they write? The National Association is the best place. Uh, just write uh, NAPPS, which stands for National Association for the Preservation and Perpetuation of Storytelling. Uh, Jonesboro, uh, with an O-U-G-H on the end, Jonesboro, Tennessee. Zip code is 37659. Or the phone number there is area 615-753-2171. There are publications, uh, a monthly newsletter, a quarterly journal with some in-depth articles on storytelling, and a national directory which would tell you who in your area is involved in storytelling and what the local organizations might be as well. Don, uh, as our listeners know, we learned about you through a comment that uh, Congressman Dan Hamburg made when he and some other members of Congress came to visit you uh, about six weeks ago in Ocracoke. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it's like to um, teach members of Congress, the lawmakers, how to tell a story. That, that was great fun. Uh, with, with storytelling, we're moving we're moving toward a more primitive level of our, of our language in that in storytelling, because we can talk two or three hundred words a minute, we can paint pictures. Um, when we start writing, we start searching for forms of shorthand uh, to save writing so that if I'm telling you about uh, about someone I'm, I've met that I'm fascinated in, I can spend three minutes and I can paint you a 700, 800 word picture of that person. When I start writing, I don't want to write three pages. So I use shorthand and just say, she was beautiful. Now, I know what I meant, but when you hear that word, you don't know what you meant. Um, Every professional group of people develops a shorthand. And in Congress, there's a shorthand. We talk about deficits, we talk about health care crises, we talk about uh, 
budget shortfalls. We talk about all those words are shorthand. The people who use them know what they mean because they're summarizing the experiences they work with. The ordinary person in the public doesn't know what the word means. So in storytelling, what we were doing was we were trying to find some human pictures to be able to use instead of the word deficit or some human pictures to be able to paint instead of words like healthcare crisis. So if Dan can come back home and if he can tell a story about something which happened when he was a child, which reminds us of something that happened to us when we were a child, and when we get down to the end of it, then he says, now that's what deficit spending means. <laughs> then that's clear to us. Uh, if he can tell a story about uh, a person in, in, in your district, in your area, and then at the end of the story say, that's why we need to deal with our, with our health care system. That's clear. Uh, so that's what we were doing. We were trying to find those ordinary, common, human expense stories, which in Congress are often not told, but summarized in shorthand to try to build that whole communication process. Did it work with the members of Congress who came to visit you? It worked very well. In the beginning, uh, in the beginning, I was not sure because I, I was not sure, are these people going to enter into this process and sort of take the risks that are involved in doing it? But we did it very well. We, I, I made a little set of, set of crisis prompts, which we uh, put on pieces of paper, and, and, and people have sort of had to draw them out of a pile and open one and on the spot tell us the story that came, uh, came from that prompt. Uh, so if someone picked a piece of paper that said, go back to your childhood and tell us about your first pet, how'd you get it, and what finally happened to it? Um, we had a story uh, that the person who was telling us didn't know they had inside of them. And actually, when that pet turned out to be a, a pretty dear memory, uh, we had a story that had some emotional quality to it as well. Don, we're just about coming to the end of our time, but uh, I'd like you to, in, in maybe a minute or so, tell us about the Family Storytelling Workbook that uh, you will be publishing in the fall of this year and how our listeners might be able to get a copy. Right. We've retitled the book that, that was the working title when you and I first talked. It's in the process of, uh, of its final uh, editing right now, and it's just going to be called Telling Your Own Stories. Uh, that's published by August House. Uh, uh, August House publishes out of Little Rock, Arkansas. They're very nationally distributed. It's easy to get. Telling Life Stories. It's uh, a resource for family and classroom story creation, uh, personal journaling, uh, and, and stories for public speaking. And it has in it about 60 beginning places for personal stories. Uh, about a third of those begin with crisis memories about a third with important places and about a third with important people. Uh, it also has a number of essays about the medium, um, uh, about issues like what happens when you want to move a story from the oral to the written medium. Don, when will that book be available? It'll be available by mid-September. 
Don Davis, uh, master storyteller, I want to thank you very much for being with us here on Government Politics and Ideas and hope that you can have a um, talk with us again we're, because we're now out of time. Thanks, Barry. Don Davis is a storyteller from Ocracoke, North Carolina, and joined us in this archive edition of Radio Curious, first broadcast in July 1993, when Radio Curious was called Government Politics and Ideas. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.